0: I was wondering if uh, anybody's ever been given a cross for their pocket. Anybody? It's an idea of uh, having a little cross, um, only about this big, you know, no bigger than a coin, to carry it in your pocket, at least for uh, for men, we carry it, and then every time you put your hand in, it's supposed to remind you of something. And of course the cross, hope, hopefully that it reminds you of God, that it you know, uh, to call mine to that every day. I was given one at a retreat and I'd never, never heard the idea before. And um, the man that give it, gave it to me actually made it. He made it out of amber. It was re- real, real nice, real smooth stone. It felt good in your pocket, it really did. And I decided that uh, I would use it the way that uh, I do for any child that I dedicate. I always give something to the Father of the child that he could carry in his pocket that every time he feels it, he could remember to pray for his children. The problem with me though, was that I found out real quick, I only use one pocket. I use it for my keys and I use it for everything. So every time I pulled my keys out, my cross would go flying somewhere. And by the time I went over to get it, I'd get frustrated and then forget what I was supposed to pray about. And then one day I lost it in the wash and never saw it again. We're in, not in the middle, but just at the beginning of this series, this study that I wanted to do on the cross And I began with that, that whenever I refer, because I'm going to refer to it many times, I thought, as many times as I have to refer to the power of the cross, I should get across to everybody that we're not talking about the cross itself, right? The cross in and of itself has no power. That was our very first lesson. Even if we had the very cross that Jesus hung on right here, it would give us no power, amen? When we talk about the power of the cross, we're talking about the spiritual transaction that took place on it him dying for our sins our atonement and the power then to be able to live this life that we no longer deserve out as children of God that's the power that he gave he gave them not by the will of flesh and not by the by men's will but by the power of God we become his children that was the first one and and it it comes off this this verse that, that, that I looked at before, and I'll always start with this one. It says, we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. This is what I want to get at. Why is this story, this event, our uh, how central it is to our lives? Why is it foolishness to the world, and why is it a stumbling block to believers? Because we were told in Revelation that this power, this event is even shown to us in Revelation. Remember in Revelation five, they're all around the throne and there's this, this scroll there with seven seals that no one can open and everyone is very upset about it. In fact, there's weeping. Everybody that's around the throne in heaven is weeping. Every angel, everybody. Because there is nobody worthy to open the scroll. And then we were told in verse five, it says, do not weep, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we're told that whoever this lion of Judah is, he is at least a human because his humanity is is confirmed. He has a genealogy. He comes from the tribe of Judah. You know, he descends from David. He's conquered, he's conquered, and he can open the scroll. Because we were, we were told this, they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were what? You were slaughtered, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And then he goes on to say that you made them to be a kingdom of priests serving our God and they will reign on earth. The lamb is worthy because he's human and because he was slain. Those are the two things that make him worthy. And in doing so, he bought a people from all peoples of the planet. So two two views, if you will, of the very same event. We see Jesus, we see Christ on the cross in bloody, broken agony in this kingdom, the kingdom of the world, it happened here. Yet in the kingdom of heaven, we see him triumphant on the throne. And because of that one bloody, broken, horrible event, he's worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And he was worthy to redeem us. So the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of the world, they collide at this point. They are always uh, uh, together and intertwined at this point. And the one event that happened in the kingdom of the world The one event that happened in the kingdom of the world is the only thing that makes him worthy to be the king of kings and lord of lords in heaven. So we live in this paradigm, two paradigms if you will, two paradigms of what victory means, two paradigms of what power really is, two paradigms a way of living life out either as citizens of the world or citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're always living out these two paradigms, and that's what Paul is kind of getting at when in that in that verse. Because this is the verse before and the verse after here. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified. The religious, the church, they demand power, they demand signs. The world demands wisdom, but the world has a standard of wisdom. Paul says, Christ is both of those. He is the sign and he is the wisdom. But those of us who are living in the kingdom of the world right now, we see his wisdom in the kingdom of heaven and we actually might think that it's a little bit what? A little bit foolish because it certainly doesn't wash here. And this is the paradigm. See, in this kingdom, this world thinks that the power of Christ is foolishness. And the Bible exposes why. The Bible tells us why this world thinks that that event that thinks Christ dying for his children to make them children of his Father, that one event thinks it's foolishness, the Bible tells us why. And I know we all know why but sometimes we need to be reminded. So how far back do you wanna go? How far back do we go to figure out why the love of God is foolishness to the world? Well, it's because of the people that are in charge of the world. By the way, who is in charge of the world? There's only one race in charge of the world. Who are they? It's us, isn't it? Humanity, if you will. Okay, so you can't go back any further than the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created humanity. And they were created in his image. I usually go into a whole thing about what his image actually is, but we don't have time today, so I'm just going to say that his image actually is them now being able to be what he has always been. When he makes himself known, he makes himself in community. God only created uh, creatures in order to be truly love. You with me? He can't proclaim to be a God of love and be a God alone by himself. He needs somebody to love. And he needs someone to love him too, in order to be love. So these creatures actually are created in his image. All three of them able to love now, to love each other and to love God. And love comes, always begins in one place, one fundamental place you have to start in order for creatures to be able to get to love. And you have to start here. The Lord God commanded the man, you may what? You may freely eat, you may freely eat every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely, what? Die, they had the ability, if you will, it was created in them to do what? To choose. Even before the fall, they could choose between which tree. They didn't have to eat from every tree every day, did they? He said you could eat from any of the trees and you can eat what? Freely, they were created with what? With free will. If love doesn't come from free will, it's no longer love. It's an imitation of love. It's a perversion of love. God gave them free will. And the free will said this, I created you with free will. You could love me or not. You could worship me or not. If he only wanted people to worship him, he would have created another kind of pet. He'd already created an entire world, an ocean of pets, didn't he? Humanity was supposed to be different. We're the only ones that can do this. As long as they choose life, they'll have life given freely by the creator, lived now freely by the creature king and queen. Is there anybody here who is married who did not have First Corinthians 13 said sometime during your ceremony? Either printed in your bulletin, pastor said it, somebody with scripture reading said it, You probably got a gift that had 1 Corinthians 13 on it for your gift. Is there anybody here whose wedding did not have something to do with 1 Corinthians 13? Not if I married you. I know if I married you, it's right there in the middle of my my devotion for you, okay? 1 Corinthians 13. You ever notice that in Paul's listing of love and as, um, how how do we put it? As profound and also as, I guess, uh, um, overlooked, if you will, that 1 Corinthians 13 is. It's one of those passages that is so profound, but also so referred to so often, it's now become, eh, right? But have you ever noticed that he only gets two qualities of love out before he has to add now what it isn't? There's only two is at the beginning love is patient, love is kind. And then he has to turn to what? Love isn't. It's the pastor, it's me, it's anybody who's ever married. It's Paul actually telling the couple who's experienced this this beginning, this brand new beginning, this this beautiful um, uh, beginning of romance and everything else, telling them, look, I wish that it was always going to be kind and patient before you go headlong crashing into the two natures that are now living under one roof. Love on this planet is a demolition derby. It's not envious, it's not boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That's probably where he loses all of us, right? Especially in marriage, amen? Does not insist on its own way. It's what happens after the fall. Adam and Eve, who were before that, were perfectly patient, perfectly kind, didn't have to rejoice in wrongdoing because there was no wrongdoing, didn't have to rejoice in the truth because truth was truth, there wasn't anything else with me so as soon as they fell their love now becomes this demolition derby because they both adopted something else besides what they were created with their nature's immediately changed and I'm not sure that they know that I'm not sure that they understand that a paradigm of power and of love has completely shifted because they're just standing there now shivering hiding Something they can't explain. Something from within. It's, it's like truly, it's like they've got hit by a car and the car just took off and they're standing there. They've altered their natures and it immediately shows. Immediately. They hide from each other. They can't, we talk about them hiding in the bush from God. It's true. But before they hid from, from God, they began to hide from each other. They can't trust each other now. God shows up, asked them what happened. It was the woman. It was the snake. They don't notice. They have not noticed, but they are just like the serpent now. They don't trust God, and they don't trust each other. When before that, they loved God, and they loved each other with all their hearts, with all their soul, with all their mind. Something has changed. The world's paradigm of power is now driven by this inherent mistrust. how do we get this way? We got born. How many here managed to get born? This is what we inherited. This is the doctrine of original sin. It isn't a specific sin. It's not talking about when children grow, they will eventually sin. It's being born into a nature that is inherently selfish. Again, I point out before, I believe as far as little sin is concerned, as far as committing sins is concerned, yes, a baby is innocent. But is a baby innocent of having a selfish nature? No way, no how. There is no more selfish being on the planet than a human baby. Does a baby care how much sleep you got? Does a baby care how much your blouse cost? As he irps on it? Does a baby care how much money you make? No. All the baby knows is that he wants it, and he wants it when? Now. You with me? Innocence about a baby has nothing to do with whether or not the baby has sinned yet or not, but he was born with what? With the same nature as his parents were born of. Who got it from his parents, who got it from his parents, who got it from the original parents. God points it out to them now. This is where we begin. Because I'm talking again about how did the paradigm shift? What is now the paradigm of power in the kingdom of the world? It goes back to this because it's completely fueled by this. God now tells them that He has the three uh, actors in the play, He has them all sitting there, and He now tells them what it's going to be like. He points it out. He says, Listen, guys, you changed the rules of the game. You changed the rules of the game. Let me tell you now how it's going to be. It won't be paradise anymore, it won't be heaven anymore. It'll be hell, it'll be hell. He begins with the woman. He says, the woman, I will greatly increase your what? Increase your pain, if you will, in childbearing. In paying, you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The very first consequence of power changing paradigm. In other words, creatures that have power now with selfish natures, the very first paradigm between them is this. One gender who for the most part has somewhat of a Superior or uh, physical advantage over the other one. What do you think is going to happen if you now give that gender a selfish nature? One who's now in it for me. If I'm in it for me and I'm stronger than you, I will eventually begin to use what? Force. Why? Because I have it. See the difference between the selfless and the selfish nature? I believe that Eve, at least Eve, began to try to cover herself up because there was a look in Adam's eye now that she didn't recognize. He's looking at her differently now. She doesn't understand it, but she will, and so will all of her daughters. Even the language of the Bible will bear that out. When you speak of marriage in the Old Testament, when marriage is spoken of, even of the most holiest of men, even of the, uh, of the patriarchs and everything themselves, the language, the language is put there as to how now women are going to be viewed in the marriage covenant. Men, men no longer meet a woman and then both of them decide and fall in love with each other. Men now see what they want and they take them. And look, you look. Every woman that was matched up with a patriarch was taken from her father or bought from her father. That's why I've been trying to tell you before that that we're not looking for a biblical standard when we're talking about gender equality because the biblical standard falls way, way short. Christlike standard on the other hand, that's different. See, but it's power. It's the paradigm now. It's now what will be done, God is saying. This is what's going to happen. It's not a mandate from God. It's a reality as to what they will now be living. What did he tell the man? It's because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you shall not eat of it, curse it is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat until you re- eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken; you are dust, and to dust you shall return. From now on, he says, the, the creation will no longer give itself freely to you. And by the way, the only reason that creation no longer gives itself freely. Uh, to the creatures that are supposed to be in charge of it is because they now have adopted, the creation has now adopted the same nature as the creature king and queen. Nature has to protect itself. Because if it doesn't, what will they do? Destroy it. So whatever happens now, Here's the downside to this. Here's the downside to it. Well, I think that, first of all, the downside is that what he's saying is is that whatever it takes in life now for you to get your bread, you're going to have to work for it. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work for it. And in some cases, you're going to have to work very, very hard for it. And by the way, there is no let up for it. From the ground you were taken to the ground you will return, everything in between will now be what? It'll now be War. But the downside to that, after that, is that we adopt it to be normal. When I say we, I'm talking humanity. We adopt it it to be normal. And the scariest thing about this is that all greed will now be justified as long as it was worked for. Doesn't matter how much I get. As long as I got it fairly, as long as I worked, as long as it was the sweat of my brow, then you can't tell me there's anything wrong with my greed. Mankind will find now more reasons to marginalize other humans, other people in mankind to begin to practice this new paradigm of power. And it doesn't slip my notice that the very first thing that will be used in order to marginalize other people is economic. It's the first consequence now we will have what? Rich, poor, and everything in between. It has immediate consequences, didn't it? And the immediate consequences are translated this way as you continue to read after the fall. Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock, talking about, uh, uh, Cain and Abel, the very first children of Adam and Eve, the very first children that have to now live out this paradigm, if you will, this new paradigm of power. And, and it immediately begins as how, how they're going to worship God. So they both bring offerings and Abel brings of his flock and Cain brings of his harvest. God has, uh, if you will, he has affinity for one of them or regard for one of them and not the other. And when Cain hears this, he gets what? He gets angry, and his countenance fell. What's going on inside somebody's head when their countenance falls, when their face falls, when it changes? When he say falls, basically, really, truly, he went from uh, happy to bring God his, his, his offerings, and now he's what? It's fallen. You can name any, any uh, emotion if you'd like to go on here. Is it jealousy, is it envy, is it lust, If it's pri- is it pride, is it arrogance? The answer is what? Yes, it's all of those. Which means so that when he decides to act on that and to kill his brother, what was the reason that he killed him? He killed him for nothing. He died for nothing. He killed him because of a human emotion, which God told him at the beginning. Get a hold of this, Cain. I understand how you're feeling. I know how you're feeling right now. Remember what he said? It's crouching at the door. Get a hold of it, he said. See, but you can't tell now a human being that their own lust, that their own jealousy, that their own envy or pride or arrogance is not a reason to be acted on. People now will be killed because of other people's fallen emotions. That's just the way it is now. By the way, these are the very first, these are the very first brothers. You talk about sibling rivalry, you think maybe at least one one sibling rivalry would end up good? No, the very first one ended up no longer having a sibling. God shows up and he tells Cain, you know what? Uh, can't abide by this, man. Can't abide by it. Uh, you can't be a farmer anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm moving you. I'm removing you from your fields. And Cain says, no, no. He says, this, this is too much. The punishment is too much for me to bear. And by the way, if I leave here, if I leave the protection of my father, somebody's going to avenge my brother's death. Right? There's somebody out there who will know who he is. And they'll say, you know what? You had no right to kill your brother. So I'm going to kill you. And God says what? He says no. It says, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. What protects Cain now is a what? A threat. A threat of more power. A threat of more power in this new paradigm of power. It's now fueled by vengeance. Mistrust, mistrust of God, mistrust of each other, And in order to protect ourselves from that mistrust, vengeance now becomes the idea or the fuel or the main cog in the machine. Only the threat of being killed sevenfold, which I don't know what that looks like, now protects Cain. Cain's grandson comes along, though. Cain's grandson comes home one day and tells his wives, by the way, the very first time that we know that they're taking multiple wives, he just takes them, if you will, he comes home uh, one day and he pronounces, he makes this pronouncement to his wives, I just killed a man for hitting me. I, uh, you know, (laughs) I, I, I know you might think that I'm reading too much into this, but there is a reason that he told his wives that that was a pronouncement also to them of what may happen to them if they decide to hit him. Listen to him. I just killed a man for hitting me. And so he needs to make a pronouncement. In other words, he needs to find So he calls on the mark of his grandfather in order for protection. He goes back to the original. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 70-fold. 10 times, the new paradigm of power is up now to 70 murders for one. Violence has no end in the toll in this paradigm. Force, coercion, fear, to get people a free will to do what others want or need them or to protect them from in order to do so or to be safe is now humanity's curse. We're born into a planet that we need to be protected from. That's our curse. And the only way we know how to do it is by the rules of the paradigm of power of the very planet in which we live. Eye for an eye. But not in this case. It's 70 eyes for one. And it's such, so much of a curse that if you keep on reading, within 10 generations of the first murder, you have God actually saying this the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with what? Filled with violence. Filled with violence. It took, only, it took only this long for that new paradigm of power to bring humanity to the brink of extinction. The, humanity is this close to cannibalizing itself. It's filled with violence. It's now down to eight heartbeats. Eight heartbeats is all that's left. Eight heartbeats are the only eight little passages amongst the entire population of earth that God can now communicate. And, I, and, I, and I'd like to say, I'd probably say that probably out of those eight, there really is only one listening to him. So I know I have a whole study on this too. God's solution to this is the only solution that he's been forced to make. The flood then becomes an act of mercy to buy humanity time. If God does nothing, how long will it take for those eight heartbeats to be extinguished? The flood buys them time. Otherwise there's no way. There's no way this is gonna go another 7,000 years, right? In order to be able to get to Jesus. Maybe up to 8,000 years to get to us. <laughs> and it's extinction brought on by ourselves. It's extinction brought on by humanity and living out this paradigm of power now, if you will. So this will slow that paradigm down now. Maybe enough to get humanity to to recognize something. Maybe it gets humanity to be able to examine and question our instincts. Okay, so these are our instincts. This is what my instinct is. Uh, uh, Maybe I don't have to act on it. Because, because I I noticed that that right after um, the flood, he 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 comes back with with more rules. It's only going to be 120 years, and then he tells them this, and then he tells them, "Okay, you can eat, but don't eat everything." You know, I mean, he begins to he begins to at least show them that there's another way than living out these instincts. Because if you continue to do this, right, and I hope that that's. What I'm helping us do today is to recognize and question our instincts. Because you'll notice that even after God acts, Genesis 10 tells us how the descendants of Noah's son began to settle down around them. You'll notice that after the flood and he begins his covenant with Noah. It's the same covenant that he gave Adam and Eve. He told Adam and Eve to leave the garden and to and to um, be what fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He tells Noah's descendants the same thing: go and do it. Uh, go out, okay? Go out. <laughs> I, I like the idea that one of the things that may help them preserve uh, to being able to live to three and four more other generations is to get the heck away from each other, right? The problem is, is that when they get away from each other, and they're far enough apart, and they're long enough apart, then all of a sudden, now they become different. And now all of a sudden, I look back and I'll say, wait, "Wait a minute, uh, Mike, I, I don't even recognize you anymore, man. Now you're different." Okay, and different needs to be distrusted. But what I notice when you're reading chapter ten, what I notice just that that people just kind of settle in, like Japheth, the descendants of Japheth. This was the other of Noah's sons. From these, the coastland people spread. These are the descendants of Japheth and their lands and their own language by their families and in their nations. They just find their way and they settle, okay? They just find their way out and they settle. I, I, I find that comforting, I really do. After what they've been through and now all of a sudden they find their way. They get the coastlands, if you will. They just spread out, they have their lands, they have their own language, they have their relatives. And then, then in the same chapter, we're introduced to a descendant of Japheth's brother, okay? It says here in verse eight that Cush became the father of who? The father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, A mighty hunter before the Lord. This is the first man that you will find being praised in the Bible for who he is. He's being called out. As a matter of fact, there's a proverb that is created of him. He has his own motto. From now on, mighty warriors down the path, you get to be compared to this guy. But I I wish you could see my notes. He's the first man to be praised. I put it in quotes. Is he really being praised? Or is, is Moses trying to tell us something else about him? Is mighty hunter or warrior something to praise a human for? I noticed that if you look up Nimrod today, there's a whole lot of scholarship out there and about, uh, about his name and everything else. But one thing that's interesting is it's this Hebrew word hunter, if you will, or warrior. There's some Greek derivative that when it was translated on that there's actually some Greek translation when it was uh, being translated that actually uh, is, is kind of the basis of the word tyrant. And there's a way that I kind of have begun to look at him. See, it says here, it says the beginning of his kingdom. So Japheth was settled in the coastlands. And Japheth and his people all had the coastlands. Nimrod's beginning was where? Was Babel. We'll get back to that, okay? It was Babel. Okay, Erech and Arkad. All of them in the land of Shinar, See? So he began there. So just as Japheth's relatives settle in the coastlands, uh, Nimrod settles in this place. He's doing what everyone's doing. And then he does something else that no one else does. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Notice that Assyria already has a name. He didn't just see land that he liked and decided to go in and annex it. He saw what? He saw people too. They're already there. They're already established. And when he goes in, he builds something that isn't theirs. So what did he do? What is the Bible telling us that Nimrod did? He conquered them. Even conquered them to the point to where he could change the name of something that he puts in it. He's the first human after the flood to look at somebody else and go and take what he wants. And he seems to be praised for it. But who may be doing the praising? See Nimrod was considered mighty because he took what he wanted. And what was it he had established first? Where did he go first? Babel, where do you hear that? Where do you hear that next? The very next chapter, Genesis 11, we hear of the tower of what? It's the very next narrative. Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top, where? All the way into the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. This is how Nimrod is going to set this down. The tower is in the land that Nimrod established. There's even speculation that the tower was Nimrod's idea. Nimrod may have built the tower himself. And why is he building a tower so high? What's our usual story? What do we say? Why is it that the people of Babel built the tower so high? What are they doing? They're protecting themselves, right? In case there's another what? So that that sounds kind of uh, something that would be natural, something that that you should do, right? Is that they don't trust this God. He rained on them once. He's gonna do it again, right? By the way, if he brings about another flood, what's that tower gonna do for him? (laughs) Especially when most of the water came from underneath, right? But anyway... We think that they're just wanna stay higher than the water. I'd like you to follow me on something. I don't think so. I think the nature of this is far, far worse, a whole lot more sinister. Archeology span in the area, in that area around there, quickly found all over these temples of ancient Mesopotamian worship, these circular pyramids called ziggurats. They were everywhere. And I'm, I'm doing this. They were a lot bigger than this. They were huge, all over, about the size of our sanctuary and more. And they are all built the same way. They're all kind of circular and they all have this circular staircase that goes all the way around up to the very top. And at the very top, there's something else, a, a little miniature temple kind of built on each of them. And each of them have a door. And according to these forms of ancient Mesopotamian worship, they call this door Bav El. Remember El is a Semitic way to refer to God. It's in God's name himself, El Shaddai, Elohim, Elohenu, right? Bav being doorway. You thought that Babel was the languages, right? Babbling, no, no, Bav El means the doorway to God. What they have never found was whatever the model of all these ziggurats were. My speculation, you know what the model is? The Tower of Babel. It's built just like it. And in this ancient Mesopotamian worship, guess who the number one God in the Pantheon is? A God named Nimrod. A mighty hunter before the Lord. This tower wasn't built to escape the floodwaters. This tower was built to get all the way into the heavens and open the door to God to send Nimrod in to do to that God what Nimrod does. And what does he do? See, if he kills God, they don't have to worry about it anymore, do they? In this new paradigm of power, the man who takes for himself is the one who now is God. this new nature, this new paradigm of power always finds its solution in the greatest show of force, the greatest show of coercion, the greatest playing on fear. In 1994, Rwanda's population of seven million was composed of three ethnic groups. Hutu, approximately 85%, Tutsi, 14%, and Twa 1%. In the early 1900s, Hutu extremists within Rwanda's political elite blamed the entire Tutsi minority population for the country's increasing social, economic, and political pressures. By the way, 100 years before, it was the other way around. The Hutu remembered past years of oppressive Tutsi rule, and many of them not only resented, but also feared the minority. On April 6, 1994, a plane carrying President Habi a Ahutu was shot down. Violence began almost immediately after that. Under the cover of war, Hutu extremists launched their plans to destroy the entire Tutsi civil- civilian population. After killing high profile leaders first, Tutsi and people suspected of being Tutsi were killed in their homes, and as they tried to flee at roadblocks set up across the country during the genocide. Entire families were killed at a time women were systematically and brutally raped. It is estimated that some 200,000 people participated in the perpetration of the Rwandan genocide. In the weeks after April 6, 1994, 800,000 men, women, and children perished in that genocide. Perhaps as many as three quarters of the Tutsi population. At the same time, thousands of Hutu were murdered because they opposed the killing campaign and the forces directing it. This is humanity's solution. It always has been. You know, and I hesitate using a genocide as an ultimate illustration of what humanity can be when I'm talking to a church family, because as soon as I said Rwanda, we checked out, didn't we? That's not us, right? That's not us, that's them. And, and, and in some circles, there's, a, there's kind of a way to be able to blame the Rwandans for their own problems. This was their fault. It wasn't because they were Rwandan, it was because they were what? It was because they were human. And by the way, we're all what? We're all human. We shouldn't check out when we're talking about genocide that happened in our century on our watch. By the way, I know of at least one Adventist pastor who was convicted of murder because he rounded up Tutsi into his church and then let the authorities know that they were there. So this isn't a case where we can go, I thank you, O Lord, that I'm not like them. It's been proven. It's been proven in clinical trials that humans, all humans, Rwandan, American, Romanian-American, African-American Hispanic American all what all humans okay When shown images of perceived enemies, okay, so they they've done in clinical trials. They've got them together um, They've they've drawn blood. They've looked at certain levels of things. They're doing MRIs or PET scans as they're watching and they're being shown um, images or of or their of their perceived enemies getting their punishment You know what happens to the human brain when we see our enemies getting punishment? We get a shot of dopamine. It's wired into us. We get a shot of dopamine. In other words, we get high on our enemy's punishment. It's who we are, it's how we're wired. I'm not sure if the studies are related, but there are Dutch psychologists, so hopefully to reel this in a little bit. There are Dutch psychologists who wanted to prove this further. So they took various soccer fans, football for you, uh, for you others, but various, for for us it's soccer, okay? Just so we can tell the difference between the two, all right? But they took various soccer fans and they wired their faces, okay? They, They hooked them up to electrodes to all of the muscles that made their mouth do this. And what is it, when it, what do we call it when our mouth does this? Okay, smile usually means we're what? It usually means we're happy. So they wired all of these soccer fans' faces, okay? And what they did was, they showed their favorite team scoring a goal, and guess what happened? Right? So they measured it. They were able to measure how intense it was, they were able to measure how many muscles were engaged, and they were able to record them and to write them down. Same fans were then taking their arch-rival's team and showed them failing to score a goal, missing or, 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 or whatever, failing to. Guess what happened? Twice as much. They would rather see their arch-rival fail than to see their favorite team succeed. And I know what you're saying, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I know, because those soccer fans are crazy. But American football, no way, right Mel? Mel would rather see Michigan lose than Ohio State win. That's, that's what I'm saying here. So if this happens with just images and something as innocuous as sports, do you think it gets any better or any worse when we begin to talk about things that really matter? Gender, race, politics, ideologies, countries, cultures. Do you think it gets better or do you think it gets worse? Religions? Factions within our own religion. See, because if you're tempted right now to, to as a Christian say, "Well, that's not me." Why are my face you you won't you won't see that? Oh, really? Oh, really? If we think then that if we think that we're just not paying attention, we're just not paying attention. That even the good news, even the good news, the gospel, our interpretation of it, our walk as Seventh Day Adventists. We have found reasons to look down on someone else. I thank you, O oh Lord, I'm not like that sinner over there. I thank you, O oh Lord, I'm not like that Sunday keeper. I'm not like that meat eater. So God's made sure that we've known, to make sure that we can know that for a human race created and born to be free, the paradigm of power of this world never works. Every time that we try to force through fear, force and coercion, even people to do good things or to be good things, does it ever work? Why? Because we were fundamentally created to be free, to decide. kingdom of heaven can and will prevail. The problem with the paradigm of this world is that it works great in this world for a while. It works great for a while. But in the end, love always wins. Unfortunately, In the process, which is where we're at now, the intersection of these two kingdoms, waiting for this kingdom to to be uh, dissolved, if you will, as Jesus comes and ushers in the kingdom of heaven here. Amen? We're waiting for that, right? But in the interim, in the interim, the problem is, is that right now, between the two paradigms, love looks like a loser. And nobody wants to be on the losing side. See, and that's the thing about living in a time in in which we're living. I I told you before that one of the things that I felt that had happened in the past, uh, coming on 18, 20 months now, is to be completely derailed. You know, I could preach and I could say that love always looks like it's losing, but now i found more and more often when I'm trying to take the side of love, I'm now on the losing side. And it stinks. And I've been given, I've given into the temptation to go to the winning side and use the other paradigm of power, I don't know how many times. So I'm not pointing fingers, I'm confessing. So what stops, what will eventually stop this human fallen selfish nature from using this kingdom's paradigm of power from eating every human being alive? Guess what? The cross, if you will. The cross, I'm sorry, I I went one past because I was looking for a slide that wasn't there. We proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. The cross, it curses and condemns our paradigm of power by using its very own paradigm against it. Think of this, he willingly allowed the religious power of his day, who was using force, fear, and coercion, and the military power of his day. The one who used force, fear, and coercion better than any empire that came before and probably better than any empire that will come after. He allowed it. He allowed it all to happen so that he could hang there and make sure that the new paradigm of power establishes its foothold here. That love now has a foothold. He surrendered that very power. He surrendered all power that we may live. That's what God gives us today. That is the power from the cross. Notice it's his emptying. The power of of the cross is what exalts him. Being emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God also highly exalted him, gave him the name, this is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And when we do that, we're bowing to the love, we're bowing to the emptied. Not not an exalted emperor who won a war but one who willingly lost a war for us and in the process show us what love could really accomplish if we would be willing to be emptied. My problem is is that I'm not so easily emptied of my nature. Are you? No, which again is why we're in this together. The only power that will exalt us is to be not exalted. To our natures, to our world, that power, that that emptying power, that surrender, that paradigm of power from the kingdom of heaven, love, if you will, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, he sacrificed his son, that power to our natures and to the world, it'll always look foolish. It'll always look foolish. So today I just want to ask you, you want to be a fool? Because I do, I want to be a fool. I want to be known as the biggest fool for Christ on the planet. I invite you to be with me as huge, huge honking fools. That's what we should be. So the foolishness of the power, thanks for hanging in there.